Last week, we celebrated 117 years as a congregation. That's an exciting uh, reality that many congregations never arrive to. They never get to their 117th anniversary. And so I just considered the legacy that has been left to us and spoke on that last week and and, uh, used the text of Ephesians chapter 3, and I just want to remind you in case you weren't here, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 really sums it up of what God has done at West Lynchburg. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. And I think of that us, that plural us, how many us's have there been in 117 years? How many people have been a part of West Lynchburg Baptist Church, West End Baptist Church originally, uh, and then changed the name uh, years later? But how many people did God use to put the the church together for each generation to carry the torch of the gospel? The community certainly has changed. If you consider, if we're the West Lynchburg, have you guys noticed that Lynchburg goes beyond us, West? You know, when I've mentioned this to, to newer folks to the community, they go, West Lynchburg, okay, that's closer to Forest or something. I said, no, just go downtown, and, and we're kind of over there, you know. Um, you know, God has sustained us. And, and the reality of verse 20 is, is why I think God has sustained West Lynchburg. Because uh, verse 21 says, To him be glory in the church. He has received the glory. There's always been a, a passion of the people of West Lynchburg to say it's not about us, it's about his glory displayed through the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We are a generation in our day that has received the benefits of all the prayers and preaching and investment and the sharing of the gospel. And now with the baton passed to us, what are we going to do with it? How is our generation going to carry the legacy on to the next generation? So that 20 years from now, 40 years from now, and might even dream bigger and say 117 years from now when all of us are in glory, but there's still people, you know, barring the, the, the Lord's return, there's still people in Lynchburg finding truth and grace and peace right here. Well, today I wanted to take the second sta- step into what I consider the legacy of what we do now so that it can continue to press on. And I want to invite you to turn to the book of Titus. Uh, it was uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago in the summer, I walked through this, this book, short 45-verse letter that Paul writes to the pastor in Crete named Titus. So I invite you to turn there. I'm going to, rather than take a, a, an entire summer to preach through this verse by verse, I'm going to do the entire book today. Put your seatbelts on. If you don't have a Bible with you and you don't have a Bible app, just use the black Bible in the pew rack right in front of you, and and you can turn to page 938. As I look at the book of Titus, I I see some incredible things. And so to set a context here, I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 1, where you understand who's writing, who he's writing to, and why he's writing. It says, Paul, a servant of God, he understood his position. He also understood his calling. 
He said, an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. He's writing to the church. He wants them to understand the truth. And he says, which accords with godliness. In verse 2 he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That's who's writing and why. And who's he writing to? He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Titus, though small, as I said, it's only got 45 uh, verses in it, it is a doctrinal-filled book. It deals with election right there at the beginning, saving grace. He deals with, deals with Christ's deity and his second coming. He, he deals with substitutionary atonement, regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit. But Titus is also a very straightforward book on the vision for the church for every generation. That's why it's valuable for us to, to evaluate what's, what's being written here and, and does any of it apply to our day? What's Paul saying to Titus as he's trying to set some things in order in Crete that will be helpful for every generation in every community around the world? What needs to continue to be set in order so that there is a gospel presence that is strong and solid for the next generation? He says in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. So as we look at the, the entirety of this small letter, I, I want to capture three essential uh, pillars of the church for every generation to make sure they are setting into order. To have two out of three will not be sufficient to maintain the, the power of the gospel in that community. And so these three consistent standards, and you'll see it in almost every book of the New Testament, but Titus summarizes it very well here. Three consistent standards that every generation needs to set in order in the church, that it may have a legacy for future generations. The first area that he uh, highlights right after saying that this is what you put in order is that he says you need to raise up godly leaders. Every generation needs leaders of the church in order to, to maintain the progress that has already been established. In this phrase, put what remained into order, he says, appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular, as I directed you. And just a a short time, our church is going to vote on the establishment of elders. There's been a lot of discussion what elders are and what elders are not. We are a congregational church. We do not have a hierarchy such as Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and others. And so that's not what has been proposed. What has been proposed is that we might have leaders in the church that help maintain the gospel teaching, preaching, and reaching in every, uh, every generation that we have. 
That one person is not sufficient in a church to lead and protect and maintain what needs to happen. And so people will often suggest, well, are there other ways to do this? There are many ways to do this. There is one biblical way to do this. It is not unclear here. Appoint elders. Now, he's speaking to Titus, and he's going to be speaking to the church as a whole. The church congregation are the ones who determine who those leaders and elders will be. They're not self-appointed. Neither are they dictators to just continue to go in their own cycle without any input from the congregation. But without leadership, where there's a void of quality, ordained leadership, the church will be corrupted and will eventually fail. And you don't have to walk many miles from this place to see where that has taken place and the church has died. So let me explain just briefly, if there are to appoint elders in every town, as I directed you, there are two things Paul didn't want Titus to miss. What are these leaders to be like? And also, what are they to do? This isn't a thorough explanation of all things, but it's sufficient enough to put some things in order. The leaders here are to be, number one, uh, about their family. If anyone is above reproach, well, how do we determine if they're above reproach? What are they like in their family? Because how they manage their household is how they'll, they'll help lead the church. If he's not respectable in his own household, if he does not lead well, do not appoint him as a leader of the church. If there's corrosion going on at home, it's going to affect the corrosion of a lot of homes if you establish him as a leader in the church. So look at his character. Look at his, his family. It says the husband of one wife. You think, well, is that uncommon? Husband of one wife? Yes, it is. <laughs> Unfortunately, in many cultures, that they would have multiple wives. Or they would have one wife and others on their list that they would call. The husband of one wife. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and, or insubordination. This is the character, the, the family structure is how you determine if he is qualified to serve as a leader in that church. He goes on in verse 7, for an overseer, it's another term here for elder or pastor. By the way, these are all synonymous. People say, what's the difference between a pastor and an elder? Nothing. It's a title, and, and, and perhaps it's a, it's a different focus on what their, their job description is. But a pastor, an elder, or an overseer, which is a bishop, are the same persons. For an overseer, as God's stand, a steward, must be above reproach. He says it again, and this is in his character. Look at this. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain. It, it can't be personal. In verse 8, he goes on, but he has to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
how he is in his family, how his character is on display everywhere he goes, determines whether he is qualified to lead the church for this generation to be established so that there can be another generation within that church. And what is his gifting? In verse 9, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also, be, uh, also to rebuke those who contradict it. One of the most challenging positions in the church is the ones who have to stand up and look at what the Bible says that they proclaim it. Because certainly outside of the walls of a congregation, there are those who are trying to reinterpret everything in our world. What is a woman? What is a marriage? What is a gender? What are all of these things? And so you, you need to expect that outside, but when it begins to infiltrate into the body, how do you determine what is right, what is wrong, what is biblical and what is unbiblical? Do we just take an opinion poll? No. Do you just ask the leaders what their thoughts are? No. You find individuals who are willing to do the deep dive into Scripture and says, what does it say? And be willing to stand on it regardless of where the winds of opinions are flowing. They're willing to take the heat. They're willing to teach with patience and love, but willing to teach and say, but this is what God's Word says. We must hold to it. Entire denominations in our generation are fracturing splintering off because the culture has had a louder voice within the church than the Bible has. And even in the Southern Baptist Convention, there has been uh, ripples of non-doctrinal, anti-biblical things suggested in, in trying to, to throw it in there to see if we can confuse. Our God is not the author of confusion. He's very clear. It's what we desire to do to obey what he has clearly said that determines whether we have his blessing or we're going to go in our own ways. It breaks my heart that entire denominations have changed the, the drift of where they're finding their absolute source of truth. Because every one of us one day will be gone. But the word of God will remain. It's the only standard of truth that we can hold to. And so, this is what the elders are to be. Those who have a, a family structure that is, uh, you know, a model to follow. A character that can uh, stand before anybody without reproach. And a gifting that they dive into the Word of God. They love God's Word and they're going to teach it. It does not mean they have absolute perfect understanding of all. But this is why you have a plurality around uh, that group who begins to, to fight through things. And what does it say? Because everybody has different levels of understanding but let's fight for what is there so that the church can be protected and remain. So what are they to do? If these are the quality individuals that are, need to be established in raising these godly leaders, which by the way, you need to continue to focus on raising godly leaders for every generation. 
Sometimes you have great godly leaders, but then that generation passes, but there was nothing passed on to raise up new leaders who have this character, this kind of family, and that hold on Scripture. So what are the leaders to do? Look at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Right here it's begin to see. They're going to have to jump right into the fire as leaders and protect the flock. There are those who will rise up in the church in every generation to try to upset people and teach things that are not from the Scriptures. They have their opinions. They have their preferences. They have their cultural influence. But they must be silenced within the church. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. I love this phrase. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So even they speak about themselves in that particular culture. And realize that you don't have to accuse them. They accuse themselves. Yeah, we don't always tell the truth. It's kind of like getting 25 politicians in a room. What's the truth? Nobody knows. This testimony is true. Therefore, what do you do as, as leaders of the church? Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. You notice the criticism is not to push them away, but to say, what you're saying is wrong, and I'll show you the verse that it says it. You need to conform to the Scriptures. Not my standard, not your standard, but the Bible standard. It's the only thing that will hold us together. We have one Lord. And he has spoken with the word very clearly. And either we're going to surrender to that, embrace it, and, and defend it, or we're just going to have whatever everybody's opinion are, and we will fall into the culture. And the culture will like, why do I need to go to church? You're not any different than what I'm like. You don't believe anything different than I believe. Well, what's the draw to Christ? Because there is a standard, and it's God's standard. And the leaders of the church that, that the church chooses to appoint ought to be men of good character, but they need to be willing to stand up and protect the flock. It was C.S. Lewis in Reflections on the Psalms who observed, of all bad religious, no, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Those who are within the church corrupting. We can obviously see that there's a culture that's opposed to the things of God, but it's with, within the church if they are not quality biblical people speaking what the Scripture says then they are leading us astray and upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. Leaders are to protect the flock. They're also to rebuke and restore. If you look at verse 13, at the, the end of verse 13, it says, Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Well, this is what we used to believe. This is what we used to think is the Jewish people. And the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure. Not satisfied with anything. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Every generation is confronted with these kind of difficulties. They say they know God, they're within the church, but they are leading the church away from the Scriptures. They are detestable 
disobedient, unfit for any good work. One of the things I've learned about leadership over 30 years and leading the church, the leadership is not for the faint of heart. You will be confronted. You will be um, maligned. You will be slandered. I've been in situations in the past that, that the leaders of the church were leading a certain way and everybody in a particular bent were absolutely opposed to everything. And we're not talking about the color of the carpet. We're talking about whether the red letters are the only thing inspired by God in the Bible. One particular meeting in a church that I currently or formerly served where a man stood up. We had been preaching through Peter. And he stood up in a meeting and said, what Paul and Peter say are fine, but only the red letters are inspired. And that's all that we will follow. Do we just say, well, he's a nice guy. He teaches a Sunday school class. We'll just ignore that statement. We could not ignore that statement. Every generation will be challenged. And so, therefore, you must hold to the Word of God and the leadership that you establish are on the front lines of protecting the flock and rebuking and restoring so that the Word of God will continue to be the mantle, the standard by which that congregation proceeds. Chapter 2 shares with us the second Thing that must be established in every generation. The standard that we must follow. If we're going to put in order what remains in every generation, leaders in chapter 1 has to be the, the foundational beginning. The second foundational beginning is this. You must reproduce growing disciples. The first generation of any church, I imagine 117 years ago, the church was established. They were eager to reach new people and disciple them. But when you get to the third, fourth, and fifth generation, when things are growing and things are, are, are established and things are easy, sometimes we get more into the program-centered focus rather than discipleship-centered focus. We forget that not everybody who's just come is, is growing in Christ unless we step into their lives and say, but do you know how to read the Bible? Do you know what the book of Titus or, or the book of Matthew say? Do you know how to have a quiet time? Do you know how to learn so that you may teach? I think, well, well certainly the, everybody knows that. If you've ever had an infant born, how many of them knew how to feed themselves? How many of them knew how to walk on their own? Everything you do with a child to teach them is a discipleship process in the physical realm. We as believers, when someone comes to Christ, we have a responsibility, but really it's a privilege that we get to walk with a spiritual infant, help them to grow to, to a growing spiritual child, to a young adult, and then they'll be a reproducing disciple because they'll be pouring into another generation of people who need to learn how to love and obey God. In chapter 2, there is a, a significant focus for everybody in the church. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. I want you to look at this. What is our role? Is this just a committee over on the side? Or is everybody a part of the, the discipleship process? It says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What is with sound doctrine? Older men, step up. This is your call. You must lead by example. 
Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, meaning respectful. They ought to be, be able to be looked up to. Self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. I mean, older men should know what they believe and know their doctrinal convictions and must come straight from the Word of God and, and live that way. In this room, there are many younger men who are looking for older men to follow. In a generation where there are many fatherless homes or there are homes with fathers that are not good models, where do you find the models of what a man of God is like? It ought to be in the church. That's my own testimony. I didn't have a, a biological father at all in my life. I had uh, uh, two other men come into my life who were, uh, uh, they married my mother, but they were alcoholic and very physically and verbally abusive. They were not a model. By God's grace, when I began to attend church as a young man uh, through the influence of some other people, I began to look for men in the church that says, I don't know how to be a, a, a man. I don't know how to be a father. I don't know how to, 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 to do anything, but I'm going to look for men who lead in a way that looks comparable to the Scriptures. And you know, I still do that today. I have not arrived. I'll look at a Herb Maynard, though, and see how he loves his wife. And shepherds her. And I still need a long way to go to learn how to do it that way. But there are godly men in this church. And older men, I want you to know, eyes are looking at you all the time. Do it because you love God, but realize there's another generation that needs you. To, to model as an example what it means. Your, the way you live your life is just as influential, if not more influential, than just what you say. You can lead a Sunday school class, but boy, it's the other six days a week that they'll observe that'll make a greater impact. Older women, same thing. You must lead by example. It says in verse 3, older women likewise, which likewise means the list above is included on your list. And, and Paul says, let me add a few more things. You're to be uh, uh, reverent in behavior, not slanderous. Slanderous meaning false accusers. The Greek word literally could be translated devils. Don't be a devil in your church. Don't pick up and spread gossip. It says, are slaves to much wine. I don't know why the women get the, uh, the wine verse and, and the men don't. Uh, you can take it up with God on that. I'm just preaching what I see. But it says they are to not just how they live, but they are to teach what is good. You have a position that influences these young ladies in tremendous ways. Are you taking that? You say, well, I don't have any positions. You have a position by being alive and being a follower of Christ. And there are younger women. And the younger women don't have to be 25 years younger than you. They might be a year younger than you. And in reality, it may not have to do with age at all. It may have to do with spiritual maturity. Perhaps you've known Christ 20 years and someone who just turned 50 but they just became a Christian, needs you as a 45-year-old to set an example for them. It's where is your spiritual maturity? Where can you, you be an example so that someone uh, a little further down uh, behind you in the faith can follow along in your example as, as a disciple for them? You know, one of the strongest forces for spiritual ministry in a local church is with older believers. We don't have to have a lot of programs if we just have people involved in people's lives. Because just sitting down with coffee with somebody or, 
or, or, or we're just having people over for dinner, or we just spend a little extra time talking. Our senior saints are extremely valuable. Our ramblers, we need our ramblers. Not just to go on apple chips, but maybe just to sit down with some of you who are willing to listen to their story and see their example. Older believers, it's not time to retire from praying, from teaching, from shepherding, and investing in others' lives. Make yourself available, and you'll be amazed that your ministry today is far greater than when you were 30 years younger. Younger women must learn to live and love. It says in verse 4, So train the younger women to love their husbands and children. So that's the older women speaking to the lives of younger women, looking at the Scriptures and applying those Scriptures. Love your husbands and your children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Do you notice he brings it right back in? What drives our lives, our thoughts, our heart? The Word of God. Align your life to the Word of God, and you will be satisfied, and God would be glorified. Speaking of the older, is that you ought to speak into the lives of the younger, and you ought to listen to the lives of the older. Younger men must learn to serve. In verse 6, likewise, urge. I mean, you're pleading with them, pay attention. Urge the young men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech and that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Younger men, find some older men in your life that you can listen to, learn from, be challenged by. It would do you a world of good. He speaks about servants right after that, but I want to move on to the third and final pillar of the church in the book of Titus. How do we reach grace-starved people? If you establish your leaders so that the doctrinal integrity will remain, everybody in the church begins a discipleship process, relational environments where we're pouring into one another to help each other grow according to what the Word says. Then collectively, what do we have to do? It's not just an, uh, an internal work. There is a major external work that we need to be doing. When we're living our lives, how are we reaching grace-starved people? Major thrust in Titus is how the church would be equipped for effective evangelism. I just want you to notice right at the end of verse, uh, or chapter 2, about the grace that is, is, is forefront in our lives. We've received grace, but we also need to communicate the grace. There is a grace that redeems us in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, literally all types of people. Never discount who God, God's grace may touch. Don't worry about their economic status, their skin color, their background. The grace of God can save anybody, anywhere. In verse 14, he says, who gave himself uh, to, for us to redeem us from lawlessness. There's no person on the planet who does not need the grace of Jesus. And so as believers who are in the church and experiencing the grace of God, we need to be reminded that grace redeems us. Grace doesn't just meet us, it re, uh, rede uh, reforms us. Look at verse 12. Training us to renounce 
ungodliness. Not only does salvation come to us, it begins to flow through us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Oh, that which I had a passion for, I no longer have a passion for. I need to have a passion for Jesus. Let me, let me move those things out. It's going to reform my life and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. We don't experience uh, the transformation without the grace of Christ. But once we've experienced the grace of Christ, the transformation begins. The way we live, the way we think, the way we interact is completely different. It may be a process, but the desire and the direction will lead us to God's perfection. At the end of verse 14, it says, to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. We have a passion to please our Lord and Savior because that is our heart. There's a grace that redeems us. There's a grace that reforms us. And there's also a grace that rewards us. In verse 13, he says, waiting for our blessed hope. I mean, the promise. Jesus is coming back. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you agree that you desire for Jesus to come back? Man, heaven will not be anything comparable, you know, to the, 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 the incredible difficulties we have here. We'll have no more pain, no more crying, no more division, all these, the blessings of God. And what provides that reward? The grace of God. And because the grace that establishes all of these things, other people need to know these things. So I want you to look at verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. This thing has to continue to be proclaimed. And so we do this in two ways, by how we live in this world and how we lead in this world. Let me do this briefly. In verse 15, or following verse th uh, chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers, authorities, be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one. How we live in this world and interact it says to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. The way we live in this world will reflect whether we have the grace of God and we're dependent upon the holiness of Him. A sweet reasonableness. How we live, but then also how we lead. Look at verse 3. Remember where you came from. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days uh, in malice and envy. This is what we were. Hated by others and hating one another. Remember where you came from. So therefore, we didn't remember God's grace that came to us, verse 4. And, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of the works we've done in our own righteousness, but according to the, His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So if we remember where we came from, and, and we remember God's grace that came to us, this is why we remember why God has us left in this world. If He could have saved us and took us to heaven, that would have been great. But He didn't. He saved us and left us in this world so that, verse 8, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. When we live and lead like Jesus has, has transformed us to do, these things are excellent and profitable for people who do not know God. The way you live, the way you love, and the way you lead makes a tremendous difference in the lives of people who do not know the grace of Jesus. 
these pillars must be established in every generation. We need godly leaders. We need reproducing, growing disciples. And we've got a major task in our generation to reach grace-starved people.